right, welcome everyone to episode two of the Geospatial Index. Um, we've got an old friend of mine, actually, uh, Chris Brown from Mango Maps. So that's um, what I, I knew you um, for um, originally, Chris. Yeah. Um, but this is all about a new venture. So welcome. Tell us a bit about yourself. Um, then we can get on with the, the questions. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I'm Chris. Um, so as Will, what Will knows me from, and maybe some of you watching will know me from, is uh, I was the founder of Mango Map. So what map, Mango Map is a web mapping platform. Um, we started in 2013, so it's probably nine years ago now. Um, it spun out of uh, projects. I was working in Cambodia at the time, and I was doing a lot of web mapping for development aid. And back in those days, whenever you wanted to take some GIS outputs and publish them online, there weren't any uh, kind of point and click products out there to do that at the time. So what you often had to do is you had to uh, put a GIS guy together with a web developer, and then you would use open source libraries, you know, map server and those type of things to, to put something online and you would host it um, yourself. Um, every time I knew nothing about GIS when I started coming into those projects, I, I was the web guy and one of my co-founders was the GIS guy. And um, we did lots of projects like this where we implemented these web mapping solutions for everybody from like UNICEF, World Bank, these types of people. And then every time I implemented a project, I tried to automate as much of the code as I could so I could reuse it on the next project. So we would increase our efficiency next time around. Um, so that was probably back in, I don't know, like 20, 2005 to 2010, we were doing that. And then about 2010, we sort of got to the point where a lot of the open source libraries that we were using un under the hood started reaching a stage of maturity where we thought, oh, hang on, we might be able to automate the entire process here. So end users can just, you know, upload a, upload a shapefile, you know, shapefile was king in those days, upload a shapefile, style their own map and then publish it themselves. And then you don't need the web developer um, in the mix anymore. So we started building out that product and that evolved to become uh, Mango Map. So Mango Map, since then, it's been used to um, publish over 100,000 maps. We've got customers in, I don't know, I think over 100 countries. Um, so yeah, it's kind of a, yeah, it's out of startup mode. It still feels like a startup. We're still a you know a small company with a with a small team, but um, yeah, it's been going a long time and it's been used to do, yeah, a lot of things. Yeah, I, I think it was it would have been 2012. I think that I it was my first encounter with Mango Maps or what it would what would soon become that. And I think it was the Phnom Penh mapping meetup where you gave a presentation about how to make a map in 10 minutes. And I think you chose. Um, the risk of another sort of catastrophic earthquake in California and the consequences in terms of nuclear power plants. So that was, it made a big impression for me. It was a memorable way to introduce the, the platform. Yeah, actually, I still remember, I still remember that map and that presentation because that it was, I think that was around the time of the Fukushima um, earthquake and tsunami yeah. in Japan and um, the, the reactor there with the problems. And then I just thought it'd be an interesting map to look where the seismic hazard zones are around the world and their proximity to nuclear power reactors. And the place that stuck out like a sore thumb was California, major fault lines. And then there were two very large nuclear facilities right there. So I thought I'd I'd map that out. And um, like I was saying, we're, we're, the place that we come from previously, where we used to implement web maps as consultancy projects, um, I, I've worked on projects where going from like the idea to having maps online would would span months. I've even been on ones where it took years, like like a year to get um, a, you know a full web mapping portal online. So at that presentation, our tagline for Mango in the early days was the ten minute map. It was the idea that if, if you had this data set, you could go from that to a published map online 
um, within 10 minutes. And then I did that as a, like a lightning talk at the, at the presentation where I got that data and started with nothing, put it online. You know, that stuff today, now we're in the world of like ArcGIS Online and Carto, and there's, lot, there's all these products out there. It seems like, oh, yeah, okay. But in 2012, that was, that was novel and it was revolutionary because that was the time that these products were all coming online. It wasn't only us that had spotted that the underlying technology, the speed of web browsers, um, some of the innovations that had happened around Google Maps, there, there was kind of a, um, uh, what would you call it, a a series of events that all came together that made this kind of thing possible. So there was a load of startups that all started around around the same time. Um, you know, Mango was a was a you know, bootstrap company. So I'm a bit. I've always been a bit. As you can imagine, someone who's living in Cambodia in the 20s, always been a bit alternative. I think Will's. You can join me with yeah, this. You're no, a bit alternative yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, There's a community. <laughs> yeah, places like that tend to attract a certain type of people. So in those days, I was very big on the whole. Um, I'm not sure if you've familiar with Jason Fried and his book Upwork. Have you ever? I've heard of it. Yeah, I don't know much about it. I also want to say just quickly to interrupt you just for the benefit of everyone. Um, yeah. Can you define bootstrapping? Yeah, so bootstrapping. So bootstrapping is the idea that instead of taking like VC money and investment, you use your own money in order to pay for the development of the product. So this was it, it, the name's been around for a long time, but there was a big movement in the in the sort of two thousands behind this guy Jason Fried and another guy who made the Ruby on Rails fr framework, and they had a company called Basecamp. And the idea was that you don't take VC money in and millions of dollars, and you have all these staff. The idea is is you have a you have a small, highly skilled team. You grow as your revenue permits it. You aim for profitability as quickly as possible. And then you build a company where you're building product that you enjoy working on for um, a smaller group of customers. You don't need to get to a, like a billion dollar valuation that all these VC. Mm. The thing with the VC model is it's, it's, it's death or glory. That's it. Right. It's, like, it's like you have to raise a round and then 18, you have to say how you're going to spend that money and you spend it and 18 months you raise another round and it's basically death or glory. You know, if you get to the end of it, all of a sudden, wow, you're a, uh, you know, you're a map box or somebody with, you know, hundreds yeah. of millions uh, valuation. Um, but for every map box, there were 20 others mm. that, that death was the outcome rather than, rather than the glory. So the bootstrap model is it's like a hard grind. You know, it's a hard grind. So in the beginning, you don't have any revenue when you start a product like that. So you're having to plug those holes with consultancy work. That's what we were doing. We were implementing projects, doing consultancy work, and then using that money to build to to build out uh, Mango. And then we're slowly getting that. You know, with software as a service, you have that monthly recurring revenue. So it's very different to a retail, a traditional retail business, where every month effectively you're reset to zero again, and you have to make your money again. With a software as a service. People sign up, and you know we we actually have very very good retention rates, um, averages in the years. Um, so you win them, and then slowly over time, your monthly reoccurring revenue goes up. So you can think you've got here's the line here that's your costs, and here's the line that's your revenue. And at some point, those two lines intersect, and after that point, you reach a point of relative safety. So mm -hmm. although it's a real grind in the beginning, I think you can reach that point of safety more quickly. Somebody who's mm -hmm. VC funded, they very rarely meet that point of safety inside of five years. You know, I read something recently that is often closer to 10. Um, and that's if you make it. And for every one that makes it, remember there's there's like at least 10 that fail. So that's mm. the route we went with Mango. Um, yeah, it, it hasn't turned into like a company that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars, but we made it where others failed. Uh, and I'm sort of proud of that because also we did it, we did it in, um, I'm not sure what you'd say, but we, 
in a tough environment. You know, we were in Cambodia. We didn't have access to top tier developers. We cash flow issues, all of it. We had a lot of mm. a lot of headwinds, and we still managed to but, make. But th th that there's also, I mean, that's actually um, an inspiring aspect of the story. I feel um, because there's the empowerment of those local developers. They might not have been top tier, but it shows that the education system in Cambodia was adequate um, to provide you with. Um, not only willing, but also capable workers um, that did produce a, a product now that you said you have has resulted in customers in more than 100 countries. Um, so that says something actually um, about what the country is capable of. Um, okay. so. To speak on that point, what, what I meant by that um, is when I say top tier, what I mean is is developers that are ready to go on day one. So so. For example, we're doing something that's very niche, you know, like for us, it's something we work in all the time. But for anybody else, they've never heard of GIS, they've never heard of mapping, they've never heard of half these libraries, GDAO, any of that. Okay, so you're not going to find a developer in Cambodia. You'll find a developer today who's very good at JavaScript and React and mobile development or back then when we started Mango, they'd know, they'd know Ruby or Java or, or C, but they didn't know those libraries. So you, whenever you hired anyone, you would always have this lead time of six to 12 months for them to get up to speed not on learning how to code, they've got that. Cambodia's got great software developers, but learning, you know, this whole mapping world, that was the tough bit. When you're in, when you've got a bigger pool of resources like you'd have here in the UK or the, or the US, those developers would be more expensive, but it's possible to hire people that are ready on day one. They know those libraries. You can just bring yeah. them in, off you go. Now, in 2022, we're living in a much smaller world. You know, we're in the world of Zoom where, you know, we're, Today, we're actually in the same time zone in the same country talking. Yeah. You know, there's been many times where that's not been the case. It could have been the other side of the world. Um, I was just talking with Paul yesterday, who you know, both of us both of us know. This is your Melbourne. GIS partner yeah. in Cambodia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you know, we're talking live. So now in 2022, those, the, the world's a much smaller place, and we can, we can hire resources from much further afield. That remote working um, is much easier. It was possible before, but it's, it's easy now. Um, yeah, so that, that was the one of the barriers there. You know, the plus side with Cambodia is obviously developers um, are cheaper. You know, the, the uh, costs are lower. Um, you know, we, we pay like what are considered like really awesome wages in Cambodia, but it's still much lower than what, what the salaries would be here in Bristol. Mm. Um, but the salaries... Let alone here in with, London. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but the salaries we provide to our developers in Cambodia afford them a much higher quality of life than what the average developer right. salary affords you in London okay so right, it may sound right. low yep. to us no, like, oh, and, and I love low, that but, yeah but my guys they all own their own houses and they're fantastic <laughs> you know, yeah. no and that's also a really positive part of the story um so yeah I really like that um okay so I think I've fashioned a segue then um, <laughs> into what was supposed to be the first question all right so you mentioned bootstrapping basically the concept is that um as early as possible you are deriving a revenue stream to get to the point where you can support the business um you mentioned subscribers um and i guess over the long term um businesses like yours in a funny way um can come to support themselves and by a funny way i mean that Mango Maps, as I understand it, somehow cornered the gym franchise map niche. Can you tell us a bit more about that? I would never have thought that Mango Maps and gyms could be connected. Yeah, okay, so that's a weird one. And, and we're, we're sort of leading towards something here, just to give some sort of background. I think what we're leading towards now is, is MapStack, which is the new startup that I'm working on sure. right now. Sure. Because um, the guys the guys who are watching this might not know that. And, and yes. uh, Will's very careful leading us, leading us <laughs> through the story 
<laughs> into the so you can understand the uh, the the later. We later will get there. We'll get there. Okay, so yeah, so uh, Mango. Just to give some backstory, we've we've um, there's a category of customer at Mango or user that we've that for, we've seen since pretty much day one that in that have become known internally as the unmapped. Okay, and who the unmapped are. So actually, before we even get into who the unmapped are, let me tell you what we what we saw and how we discovered them. So in the early days of Mango, when we first launched, we would see um, a lot of people sign up. So we're a software as a service product. You know how they work. You go to a homepage. Here's the promise of what we do. You click on a button for a 30-day free trial. You, the people go into the trial. They'll sort of upload some data, make a map. And then at the end of the month, some of them will pay. Some of them won't. Some of them will never see them again. Some of them will come back in a few months and pay them. But we had this cohort that would sign up every single month, and they represented about 75% of the signups who would sign up, go to the homepage, go to the sign up page, sign up, and then never do anything. They wouldn't upload a data set, they wouldn't contact support, just nothing. We'd just sign up and do nothing. And this was kind of a mystery to us. Now, when the product was new, it was obviously very kind of beta, I think would be the right word. So in our head, we're like, oh, we're missing features. The onboarding's not good. We don't have the right data formats. It was all like product related. But as time went by, we were thinking, we're sort of plugging those holes one by one, and it was still happening. So we're like, this is, this is kind of strange. So I did what I should have done in the beginning is I started reaching out to these people that had done it and said, listen, I saw you sign up. You did absolutely nothing. You know, I'd love to know how I, you, know, you, you obviously got a problem you like to solve, and I'd like to know if I can help you solve that problem. And then obviously some people wouldn't reply, but the ones that did, we kept hearing the same story again and again. And the story went something like this. It was, it was I had this idea for a map that I wanted to make for my university project, uh, my small business, uh, my NGO, my community. Um, I had this idea of what I wanted to make. It's not the kind of thing you could do in Google Maps. They don't know the word GIS or they don't like that. I want to, there's something that I want to show on top of the map. That was the idea. Um, I couldn't find anything that did it. I couldn't do it in Google Maps. I did a Google search. Your product, because if you type into Google, like just web GIS or online GIS, we're, we're in, you know, we're in the mix in the first few results there. So we came to your product. I saw it. Oh, you can make maps. The maps that were in the screenshots that I saw looked like the kind of things that I was thinking about. I'd sign up. And then as soon as I signed up, it's asking me for these funny file formats that I've never even heard of. Um, I didn't know what they were. I didn't have that data. Maybe my data was in a spreadsheet or a CSV, or I didn't even have the data yet. And, and then I look, and then some of them that are really perseverant. So most people just stop there. They're like, this is not for me. Go. And then you've got the really perseverant ones who are like, oh, I realize that there's this type of data. And um, I went looking around for that type of data and I couldn't find it or I found the wrong one. And when I got it, I didn't know how to open it. I found it on a government website. I didn't know how to open it. And then the super, like the 1% who was super, super perseverant again, oh, I realized to open that, I need this piece of software called a GIS. And I saw there's you know, something called Esri and it costs a lot of money and I couldn't figure it out. And then, then the 0.1% are like, oh, I found this open source one called QGIS and I open it up and there's 500 buttons and 600 menus and it was, it was too much and I just gave up. So that's, that's the story. 90% of them just give up straight away. This is not for me. So we started calling these users the unmapped. And, and we, couldn't really, we couldn't really help them. So the next part, we, so we started tagging them in our, in our, you have these CRMs, customer relationship management systems, where we tag them. Oh, let's not spam them with emails and all it because our emails are all geared up to a, people who know what a shapefile is would be the easiest description. 
If you know what if you know yeah. what a shape file is, you can use Manga. You don't need to be a GIS pro. You don't need to be an, an expert, but you at least need to know yeah, what. A but there, there's there's the ex shape files of the world. They're not shape files. They're shape. Well, they are shape files. Plural is the the thing that's the issue with them. You know, yeah. it's not just one file, but and that we right there is, formats, is the source of the problem. I, I always use shapefile just as the example. Yeah, I, yeah, don't, no. I don't like yeah. shapefiles. I'm a GeoJSON guy, but yeah, I'd be in a software developer. But yeah, so those guys would do that. So we were like. Okay, right, so here's the problem. We understand the problem a bit now. These guys, uh, most of the time, don't have data, or if they do have data, it's not prepared. It's not in a, in a spatial mm. format, so they need to learn how to do a join. So they need to go and find a piece of data that, that has the boundaries for whatever they have in that spreadsheet or their idea, and then they need to figure out how to join those two things together. Hang on, so are like, you saying that gym owners knew about shared files and were able to do joins. No, we'll, we'll, get, we'll get there. We'll get, we'll get there. To, we'll get there to, we'll the get mystery there to deepens. We'll get there to these guys. Okay, we'll get to the gym owners in a moment and why they're interesting. But what happened with these guys? So we decided to start making uh, videos and tutorials, and we even made an ebook to try and take this unmapped group from, having, from zero, having no mapping skills, to having the very basic skills that they would need to find like the boundary file for U.S. counties open it in QGIS, and you do a join. Export it, upload it into Mango. Okay, we spent a lot of time making resources trying to teach the unmapped how to do that, and it, it didn't work. Only about 10% of that group would be successful with that. And the main reason that they weren't successful is not because that process is too difficult. It's, are you familiar with a concept called the, the, the awareness hierarchy? No, no, haven't heard of it. There's, there's, there's something called that they call the awareness hierarchy when it comes to comes to new technology and technology products. So, and there's five steps. Step number one is the person is unaware. They're un they're unaware of anything. Step number two is they're problem aware. That means they understand there's there's a they have a problem. I want to see this thing on a map. Step number three is solution aware. They're aware they're aware that there's a, there's a type of product that has the solution to this type of problem. Okay, and then they get then they get what they call product aware, which means they also know about your product and your name. And then the last step is fully aware. They're using your product and they know how to use it. Most of the people in this unmapped category are somewhere between unaware and problem aware. And what you find is people that are in that category, their, their ROI maths is really low. They're not even sure if this is a real problem yet. They're still they're still feeling their way around the edges. You know, they're not like if you if you're a consultant and you've just been handed a hundred thousand dollar job to go and do something, you're gonna go and find a solution for it. You know, you know you need that. But a lot of people in the unmapped are just like, I wonder if I could do this with the map. And as soon as you put too many stumbling blocks in front of them, they just drop off. They just try, they're like, oh, it's too hard, it's not worth it, this isn't right. I give up. Yeah. So that's where we that's where we got to. So that's the unmapped. Mm -hmm. I went on too long there. That's okay. So let's circle back around to kind of gym owners and where, where that got interesting. So we've been keeping an eye on this unmapped group for a long time. We realized that there's this pent up demand there from people that would like to do something with mapping, but can't. Um, and then gym owners was something that, that came along. So what happened there is one of those, um, you know, when you make a discovery about something, they, 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 most people would say it's a eureka moment, but really it's a, like a, well, that's weird. We got into it like that. It was just a, it's weird moment. Um, we work quite closely with a lot of these clients, so I won't name them by name, but what basically happened is we started seeing a lot of gym franchise companies creating accounts with Mango and paying. 
and it, we hadn't had any before and then they started and a few started you know it was like a weird trend we we're like so what's going on there um, we dug in a little bit deeper deeper spoke with these guys and figured out basically that, that a, a company that's that was very high growth in the fitness franchise industry i won't name them but they were very high growth and they were kind of the poster boy for like a global rollout yeah. fitness franchises were using mango as part of their as part of their territory sales flow so they were using it to map their territories and they were using it to um using it with customers to sell territories and then apparently something that's very common in the whole fit in the whole franchise business is like a secret shopper you know where you yeah. you would go along to to french franchise x and pretend to be somebody who wants to purchase a franchise to see what their whole sales and onboarding flow looks like so you can imitate it with yours um so you can imagine why there's a strong desire to do that in franchising because most of the people in franchising are not franchising veterans they're veterans from say owning gyms or window cleaning or whatever they're trying to franchise restaurants they don't know about the franchise business so they you know they sort of discover it it's a common thing to do so what they were doing is these other people that were coming on were just trying to imitate the onboarding flow of this company that was a success story and mango was part of that um and then we slowly started working with franchise brands um more closely now what was interesting with these guys is the one that did it in the beginning had a gis gis people and a gis team in there they were big enough they were big enough and they had somebody who already had that background. how big were they do you know i mean you don't i don't we don't global. have to get the names of them global okay so because that that's interesting only because it's good to know at what scale the geospatial industry so-called gets invoked you know yeah okay well, we, so it's we pretty much global them, we before. were with them from we were with them from the beginning when they grew out of one country and spread but they were they were like bringing on multiple new countries per year they were spreading extremely okay so it's at the growth. point where they start to go multinational but again our discipline starts to to get invoked okay yeah, yeah. interesting smell yeah so they were in there um they were using mango to do it these other guys that wanted to imitate them weren't that big they didn't have the gis people inside so they they felt they fell into the classic unmapped um category they were like, oh, we've seen this cool thing. I want to do that. But I just have absolutely no idea where to start. I, can't, I don't know where to source the data. I don't know how to prepare it. Um, I don't know how to secure it because you don't want your competitors seeing where you're selling territories and where your boundaries are and your pricing. That, you know, that's sensitive information. So they didn't know any of that. So we, these other companies that were coming in, we had to hold their hands. So we have a, um, you know, you could call it like a self-serve mango pricing model, which is the one where if you, you just turn up, sign up, upload your own data and do your own thing like a GIS guy. That's one price. And then we've got what you could call the, um, you know, the, the sort of premium service, the concierge service, where we offer a, an entire consultancy package around that because we've worked with so many franchises now. We know the common problems. Uh, we know how to properly size territories and we know how to prevent them making mistakes that are, that are very common and easily preventable early on but very difficult to fix if they go further down the line. You know, if you... So is this any franchise or... Because it sounds like you've you've found a niche, which is a, a concept that was sort of discussed in the last episode. Um, and it seems like so the, one of the primary issues you need to focus on as a business owner is defining a niche and trying to dominate it. So would you say that for geospatial or web mapping, you guys are one of the ones that dominate the niche of doing it for franchises and any kind of franchise or just one yeah. particular type? Uh, Restaurant franchises have a different set of needs because that tends to focus around a point and foot traffic. And then you're getting more into business intelligence. You're, you're crossing over into that. 
Um, the place where we dominate is places where you would have one location and it would have a, 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 a its uh, territory would be a boundary. Um, the one that's very high growth for that globally at the moment is fitness. Um, the reason for that is basically the, the death of the high street. It's probably the same in Australia and in the US, the death of the kind of strip mall, you would call it, um, because of the internet. Internet shopping's killed a lot of those places. What seems to have happened is it's brought commercial, um, commercial real estate prices down to a level that enables new business models that weren't possible before. So here in the UK, if you go to one of the, you know, in the US, they kind of call it a strip mall or an industrial park. These, these kind of big semi-warehouse type units. If you went there 20 years ago, it would be, um, so here in the UK, it'd be like your, your kind of PC worlds, you know, selling computers and PCs. Curries and, and, yeah. Curries, electronic shops, uh, big golf stores. Those things are all dead now. The internet's replaced them, but the units are still there. So now when you go to those in the UK, a lot of them will be, gym franchises, there'll be a fitness first or something like this. Um, and also the smaller units that are on what we call the high street here, you call it main street in the States, these small like, you know, individual house type shops, um, they're being turned into like little yoga studios, Pilates studios, jujitsu places. Okay, and all of those have a territory of customers in a certain driving distance or walking distance that they're trying yeah, to yeah. capture against all the other franchises in the same niche, right? Okay. Yeah. So and they're there. selling those. They're selling somebody wants to buy them. So then they're they're mixing that with data. So, you know, if I'm a a lot of people when they purchase a franchise, if they're an individual buyer, it might be the biggest financial decision they've made in their life. They might have to remortgage their house, quit their job. Um, so if when they're making that purchasing decision, they could be empowered with data at the same time. They can compare the territories and offer and go, oh, this one's got a slightly higher household income but the average age is a bit higher and we're doing, you know, we're doing MMA, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe your average MMA is for the baby boomers. Age fighting, you know? <laughs> we need to go, we, <laughs> let's go down the road. Yeah. So that, that kind of, that kind of thing, location intelligence type things. Now, so these guys fell into the unmapped, but unlike a lot of the unmapped is they have enough budget. This, this problem's important enough for them that they can spend a decent amount of money, um, on on solving it basically so so we knew this unmapped were there but unlike the unmapped that we always saw going into mango before where um you know i want to make a map of my local community or here's this project i'm doing at uni and i want to you know that those guys can't spend they can't spend the self-serve mango price which the average is you know about 200 dollars a month is the average never mind the like concierge type service that we're giving to the franchises that that can cost you know five figures yeah. Um, yeah. They they definitely can't afford that. So so maps map, the front work with the franchises showed that that you can get successful outcomes for these people if you can solve those mm. basic problems from the problem of how do I source data, how do I prepare the data, how do I make mm. turn it into something useful. And basically, I said I guess you saw a pool of customers amongst the unmapped that were well capitalized um, that were worth building up uh, another business for. Yeah. So, and that's something that's grown out of uh, Mango Maps. Okay, so perhaps it's worth skipping quickly through this question before we get to to Mapstack itself. So, I guess in standing up another business, you yourselves also have a territory that you need to make sure you can penetrate and defend. Um, so, when you were doing your due diligence before you created Mapstack, 
were there any other geospatial competitors that also seem to have detected this unmapped opportunity? Um, and what do you think of the competition that's trying to address the unmapped? I, I, I'm not seeing it. I'm not. There I'm you not, go. I'm not, yeah, I'm not. So seeing you've it. just told me there's a niche. This is the star business then. And to use, uh, or is it Richard Koch's uh, term, or zero to one type thing, or blue yeah. ocean? You're saying this is blue ocean? I would say I would say it's blue ocean. I, I would say that there's there's the only the only outfit that I've ever seen have a proper crack at this. Would I? Do you remember GeoCommons? I do. I do. Yeah. I haven't heard of it for a while. Yeah, yeah. So GeoCommons, you know, they, they I I, th I think they were they were like ahead of their time. So I think they had the same idea, like how can we how can we make a place that could be the world, you know, a hub for the world's open data? Because that's the biggest problem. If we if we separate the problem that the unmapped face into into two parts, you know, there's two parts. The very first problem they have is sourcing a lot of location data's out there. We can find it. You and I can find it. No problem. If I go and tell you right now, uh, go and find me the the median household income for the U.S. by zip code for Texas, and I give you an hour. Yeah, I, 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 reckon, would take, I could get I would through that. Hundred pounds right now. You'll come back with that within yep. an hour. Yeah. Okay. And then if I tell you, um, right, I want you to open up that data and uh, bang a quantity legend on it. That'll take you like two minutes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's. Yep. Uh, um, I'd see if I can get done with Mango Maps too. There you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Get it done with Mango Maps. Then it'll be one minute. Right? <laughs> 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 All right. Um, yeah, so that, that's the that's the biggest problem out there, and this is this is actually a problem that's close to my heart from Cambodia. This is my like, you know, that, that, that term everyone loves at the moment, you know, lived experience. So one of the things that really annoyed me with Cambodia, I've worked on a lot of projects where we would build um, open data portals, you know, kind of World Bank UN type projects, where it would be a five year project to big health study of Cambodia, and they go out and we collect all of this data, or other consultants on the project would, where are the health centers, what are the health outcomes. Um, how many women are breastfeeding? What? How many children are meeting these health markers? You know, you know the type of stuff that aid agencies collect. And once they had all of this data, they said, "Oh, we want to make all of this data available." So you'd end up building a content management system with mapping as a part of it, and you'd be able to view all this nice, all this nice data. Um, so one problem with that is every one of these projects would like repeat the same work. They would build this custom thing over and over again, and it's, it's huge inefficiency in doing that. Um, and then the second problem was, is they would self-host because, you know, this is like a time, all, all those aid projects, always like time and materials type thing. This is the fixed budget. And then what would happen is at the end of five years, it's supposed to be handed over to the government. And then as sure as night follows day, as soon as the UN or the World Bank money stops, the lights go off, servers off, data all gets lost and it just gets repeated again. So there's all this repeated work. And I, and it's not only in developing countries I see that. I see it in developed countries. Like if you go through the minefield of the UK's open data system. You know, you're like your ONS. So you go in ONS and it's got these pieces of data yep. and then another bit's going to be on data.gov and maybe yep. the ONS site's got really nice maps. You know, their maps are really cool, but their their data's a bit out of date. And then, do you know what I mean? It's it's difficult to navigate your, your way through. Yeah, uh, I had to do that actually for the introductory episode for the podcast where I was getting the number, just the growth rate of the adult population because I wanted to, get the proportion of the adult population that had an individual savings account. Um, and I wanted to look at that over, you know, from 2008 to now. Um, and that, I think I went to three different government websites and had to put it all together for myself in a spreadsheet. Um, yeah, required a bit of time, yeah. Do, do you know what it reminds me of? Like just from a, a software angle, this might not be a, a, an analogy that you're familiar with is GitHub. Are you familiar with GitHub? Sure, 
Yeah. Yeah. So GitHub, for anyone who's watching who's not familiar with GitHub, who's not a software background, I think everybody knows GitHub at this stage, but <laughs> GitHub is uh, basically a repository of all of the world's open source projects. And also privately, it has closed source projects that are on there as well. But the, the starting thing, it was open source. Open source suffered from the same problem as open data historically. Before GitHub, there were all of these different places where you could put open source projects. The, you know, there was kind of SourceForge, there was Google Code, there was all these different places. Um, and then there were loads of individuals where projects would have their own website and they would host the project on there and you could download the source code. So it was really, really fragmented. So it was very difficult to find open source projects. You know, they, were, they, were, they were hidden basically. And then they were the ones, if you think about the, you know, the long tail, but th those were the big projects that were on Google Code or SourceForge. But there was this huge long tail of like hobby projects that people were doing at home um, that would just never be online and nobody wouldn't else would see the light of day. It. Yeah, it would never see the light of day. GitHub changed that. Now we have this central place where all of the- It's open like the Facebook projects, for coders. Exactly. However big or small, we're all in one place. And if you're looking for something, you know exactly where to go and look. Um, it's active. And GitHub also does a really good job of sorting the wheat from the chaff. You know, you can see, oh, how many people are using this project? How many people have forked it? How many people liked it? When was it last updated? So that's one thing. So you can, you can, you can give things a quality score effectively when you judge whether you're going to use them or not. And then also these little hobby projects gives them the light of day. So that's what I think. So I think that where open source was prior to GitHub is where like kind of open data and especially open location data uh -huh. It's today. It's all over the place. It's spread around all four corners of the internet in every country around the world. When you, it's hard to find, and when you do find it, it's often very difficult to assess: is this any good? Is it junk? The people that, uh, the, even the people that have published it, there's no feedback mechanism in play for them to even know if it is junk. You know. Okay. So what I, I, I'm hearing is there's there's a latent community, a latent global community waiting to coalesce around a, a central point. I think so. There's two parts. One is taking existing open data and moving it into something like MapStack. So, so uh, something where you can, yeah, we haven't got all the features yet, but MapStack is very beta. We only just released like beta version a few days ago. But Sorry, and it's driven by your observation that this is massive unmet market that you've called the unmapped simply because geospatials and industry, its file types, um, let alone its methods of analysis, are incomprehensible to someone without, you know, six years of university study. Exactly. And, and that has to be a STEM degree. Exactly. There's, there's, okay. there's it's an, we, we both know it. It's in a very enterprise heavy yep. industry. Okay. Yep. We, we know, we know what the projects cost. We know what people are spending. So there's, there's a group down here that just need very, very simple things. You know, the unmapped, the unmapped, you know, they don't, they don't need like, you know, LIDAR and, um, you know, 3D. What they need often is to say, um, you know, which, which suburbs in my city um, have the most people between 60 and 70. And if you live, if you're lucky enough to live in somewhere like the UK, probably Australia, I know for the US where we have um, pretty sophisticated um, government open data sites where that stuff's kind of already mapped and you can, it's not easy, like we'll always moan about them, but we, we have to consider ourselves quite lucky and blessed that we have these systems where you can actually find that data. But what they often need to do is, you know, especially when you're in a business use case, they have these kind of like freaky things that they want to join together that are often not in the same thing. They'll say, oh, I want to know people between 
uh, people aged between 50 and 60, and also like they own a cat. I know that's not in the ONS name, but you know, just the silly, no, yeah. really silly things that where you would need to join a couple of tables together to, to be able to visualize what they, what, what they want to see. I feel like as a community, we're quite intimidating. I find the unmapped are intimidated by us. Okay, we, I, I think it's because there's a lot of overlap with government and academia. You know, GIS love, you know, that, that whole world loves its jargon. It loves its complexity. Well, just look at the background that I've chosen because I'm trying to go through the different space filling curves episode by episode. So this is the Siopinski, I think that's how you pronounce it, curve. So immediately I've lost everybody, including yeah. most people in, my, yeah, yeah, you're, in, in the industry. Yeah. So yeah, I'm guilty. Get some fractals next time or some, uh, some well, kind of is a fractal time. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah we're, we're nerdy. We're, we're, we're inaccessible. Um, what we want to do with MapStack as well, which is going to be a bit weird and early brushes with the GIS community, they don't like it, is, is we want to be quite playful. We're, especially in the beginning when we're starting, we're going to be quite playful. A different tone just to make us more accessible to yeah. the unmapped community because the GIS community takes itself very seriously. Like, You'll probably see on Twitter, we only, we only made some maps public like a few days ago. And the first maps we've been, we've been making are ones that most GIS people would say, oh, they're, they're stupid, they're a toy. They're a, you know, we did one about global population projection in 2100. Um, I did a yeah. murder rate one yesterday. Great. So we're doing very, very low res, country by country, data sets that any GIS person could find in 10 minutes. There's probably already maps, other maps out there. That's what we're doing. We, in terms of accessibility, we're setting the bar super, super low in the beginning. Yep. We want to build a foundation there. And once we build that foundation, we want them to grow with us as we go into like what, I, I use the resolution is just a paradigm analogy, but from very low res into slightly higher res stuff. We're also communicating on different channels. So, you know, Twitter, for example, is tends to be more serious, more academic, especially around the GIS community. So I'll put one of those maps on Twitter, like the one yesterday. I don't, I don't think I even got a single like. Why didn't you like it, actually? Well, Bones picked me about that. Didn't like the map I put out yesterday. I'm, I'm so, I feel so guilty, my God. Yeah, Sorry. yeah. Anyway, we'll talk about that after. Anyway, <laughs> but we made a video short of it. We made a video short of the same map. We dropped it on uh, YouTube Shorts, and it got 1,800 views on there. Got a whole load, of, a bit of chat going in the comments, 50 likes and a load of referrals across to the map. Um, and to be honest, the the, un, the, the audience that, that, that we're trying to improve the world for is that audience. Yes. Yeah. It's so the guys no. who look at that and go, oh, wow, that's so interesting. Oh, here's a, here's a map. I can click on it. Oh, I can do a filter and I can find where are the five places with the that will have the highest population in Europe in 2100. Yeah. But for the unmapped, it's go. It, it's the idea of we're not going to replace GIS tooling or any of that industry. That's not it at all. What we think, what we think of ourselves to be in the future is an on ramp to take people from zero to one, from doing nothing with maps and data to doing something. Yep. And we're not going to extend our feature set in future to start overlapping with more sophisticated tools. If people need more sophisticated tooling, once they've gone from zero to one and they go, oh, "This is really interesting. I wonder if I could do." X, Y, and Z will be like, here's a whole 
here's a whole suite of tools. Here's QGIS, here's, here's PostGIS, here's all of these things that you can, you can go and learn now. Now you've seen the value. One of the final questions, and given that this has a, a focus on um, investing and the, the business side, um, especially for common folk um, to do with the geospatial industry, um, Mapstack, apparently we can invest in somehow through a form of investing that the UK government um, supports. Um, could you tell me in a couple of minutes about that? Yeah, you can. We're gonna we're gonna be this year. We're gonna be looking to raise a uh, seed round. Um, if you want to know exactly, you know the exact details, you have to contact me directly. No doubt, uh, uh, Will will put my contact details below. Uh, but you'll be able to invest through a scheme. There's two schemes here in the U UK called SEIS and EIS. Um, so that's Enterprise um, Entrepreneur or Enterprise Investment Scheme. We'll have to Google it. Everyone just uses the acronym. It's one of those things. Um, SEIS, uh, basically, there's big tax benefits. There's, those tax benefits mean different things to different people. It depends what your tax bracket is. Um, but, the, but the short of it is that under the SEIS scheme, if you're a top, in, top in income, you're in the top income tax bracket, um, you'll get um, basically a 50% right. 50% of your, your investment will be written off again. You can write off against your income tax. Okay, so the government's kind of meeting you one for one on the investment. Um, there's a limit on that. You'd have to do the Googling because there's different limits for different people and depending on what phase it is. But um, the most basic one's £100,000. So in a year, you could put in, um, you would only have to put in £100,000 and you would get £200,000. Uh, you get 50% of that £100,000 written off against your income tax. So you, you got a 50% discount. And on top of that, if there's no capital gains on any returns that you get as the result of that investment. So you get another big incentive there because when, you know, if this company goes big and you it blows up, when you pull that money back out, no capital gains on the other side. Capital fact, gains, check tax. me on all of this. There's a lot of details and it's a government yeah. thing. There's lots of small print, but this is the, this is the like 10,000 foot explanation yeah, yeah. of it. And then also if the company folds within the first five years, you get to offset 25% of your loss against your income tax. So I think, so it works out to something crazy, like under the SEIS scheme, which is a smaller one, you're only allowed to, a company's only allowed to raise, I think it changed with that Liz Trust mini budget to like 250,000 pounds. That's kind of a friends and family type one, but effectively only 25% of the investments at risk. Is at risk, yeah. And you're getting a big discount and you're getting the capital gains benefit on the other side. The threshold 100,000 or could... Because a focus of this is is real regular folk who might only have I don't know a thousand. Oh no no you can you can put in anything you can put in anything. There you it go. Be, there's a cap to how much you can put in within a tax year. Okay, so there's a ceiling, but not a a floor. But overall, the point is the government in the UK, just like with the stocks and shares individual savings account, um, as a way to encourage participation by regular folk um, in financing businesses. Um, yeah. This is another way. Um, for even you know even earlier um, in the financing stages of a business, um, anybody can get involved. Which isn't to say you should. It should be said. Um, yeah, yeah. We are not your fiduciaries. Please yeah. do consult a financial advisor who, uh, yeah, may have certain strong opinions about this. Um, yeah. But when it's twenty five percent at risk as opposed to one hundred percent, let alone you know um, even riskier, more idiotic. Uh, things that people, especially regular folk, get sucked into, like currency trading on margin, um, anything on margin, really. 
Um, this is, I think, in that context is interesting, um, especially given that you've got more than 10 years of experience running another geospatial business, um, which is turning a very healthy profit, as I understand it, in terms of return on capital employed, in terms of free cash flow. Um, so, okay, great. So that, I guess, as you said, to uh, uh, reach out to you directly um, for more details. And I, I, I hope some people might be interested in that. All right, so here goes. Anaximander arguably made the first world map 2,600 years ago. Would he be happy if you showed him MapStack? How would you explain it to this ancient Greek? I would explain it. Uh, I, first of all, I would say explain the new paradigm of mapping. So your maps were to navigate the world, okay? And that means physically navigating the world. Um, how do I get from this island, this Greek island, to this other Greek island across the seas? Our maps might look very different to yours in 2022, but we're still using them to navigate the world. But now when we navigate the world, we're not, it doesn't necessarily mean a journey. I'm navigating, I'm navigating the, the environment, the, um, the, uh, the economy, the socioeconomics. Um, so yeah, we, 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 what you call it, as I love to say in Asia, same, same, but different. <laughs> sure. Okay, great. Uh, so continuing this idea, think of yourself as today's Anaximanda. It is now 2,600 years into the future. Unfortunately, your work is now nothing more than a prehistoric <laughs> curiosity. You may be referred to as a philosopher at best. What is the map stack of the day? Um, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't like to guess what the map stack of the day is, but I, I think what you would need to explain to somebody at that point in the future, you would say, back in the olden days where we were from, when you had a question, to arrive at the answer, you had to go through these things called intermediary steps. So we would have to do this and do this and do this in order to arrive at the answer. Whilst the world that you live in, it's probably powered by our AI overlords by then, is you just have the question and you're instantly given an answer. And you are completely oblivious that there may have been any steps or routines that were in the middle of that. Um, so MapStack was trying to, one of our goals back in the olden days where I'm from, was to reduce the number of intermediary steps because every extra step adds additional complexity. Every additional layer of complexity you add excludes a greater, a greater proportion of the, of the people, of the, of the population. So our goal is to try and remove as many intermediary steps as possible. We're not as sophisticated as you guys, so we couldn't remove them all, but we removed a couple of the bigger ones. That would be my... <laughs> I love it. That's that's a call to action right there. So yeah, sign up for, for mapstack.io. 